Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button at the top of the web page, and there's a subscribe button on YouTube. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can come on over to the web page and donate. And uh, be right back. Brazil is mired in perhaps the worst COVID crisis on the planet as President Bolsonaro continues to deny there even is a crisis. He's making Trump look rational as COVID cases and deaths continue to surge in the largest country of South America and the ninth largest economy in the world. In the midst of such calamity, former President Lula da Silva was declared eligible to run for president in 2022 as a judge of the Supreme Court, he essentially found he was railroaded into jail by another Supreme Court judge who went on to be Bolsonaro's Minister of Justice. The possibility of Lula running again for president, and he already leads in most polls, even though he hasn't said for sure he's even going to run, has caused shockwaves from deep in the Brazilian favelas to offices at the top of Wall Street banks, Will Lula lead a broad front against Bolsonaro? And if he wins, what kind of policies will he advocate? In a recent speech to the Metal Workers Union, Lula said it's always important to reiterate what, whenever you can, the planet is round and Bolsonaro doesn't know it. Well, has Brazil had enough of the insanity of Bolsonaro? Will he follow Trump out the presidential door in 2022? And if he loses the election, will he leave? Or will the Brazilian military intervene to stop a new era of Lula and the Brazilian left in power? That said, there was lots of criticism of Lula from the left as well while he was president. So if he wins, will he resist international finance or try to get along, as many people think he did too much of in the past? Now joining us is Lorena Barbaria. She's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Sao Paulo. Thanks very much for joining me, Lorena. Thanks. It's good to be with you tonight. So start with what's been going on. So there's a couple of decisions. The first judge that, that said that he, he was, uh, that Lula could be retried, but for now he can run again as president. But then there's another decision I think happened yesterday or today. So where are we, we at with this process? So we're, we're in the process where what, that's correct. Um, after many, many months, it's very important to say that uh, Lula was, has been uh, outside of jail. He was freed uh, several months ago. And, but since he was freed uh, up to, to now, he's been very low profile in the media. He hasn't been very uh, granting interviews or giving major speeches because his case was under review and was, was awaiting a decision in the Supreme Court. And a, a decision was made that found that there was it, the, the decision was really important because, as you explained, it allows for him to to be able now to uh, present himself for office if he wishes to come forward as a candidate in 2022. So that's a that's a first decision. But following very shortly after the decision regarding Lula, there was a second decision this week which was discussing the judge who originally made the decision uh, that uh, put Lula in prison 
ruling that there was bias in the way that decision was was made and in the way that the procedures that were undertaken in the investigation. And so that second decision has also been very important because this this the judge who prosecuted uh, Lula, who held the hearings, who was responsible for for the prosecution of the cases, is now uh, liable for um, because of the allegations and the rulings that are being made. There might be consequences for him personally uh, for for violating certain procedures and violating laws. Uh, and so the tables have, in a certain sense, turned from Lula being uh, outside of politics and and freed, but in a very kind of low, low, kind of under-profile person that is out of jail but not in politics, to now Lula being uh, starting again to set an agenda, set discussions in Brazil, and make major mo political movements. And at the same time, the judge, uh, who was later nominated to be the Minister of Justice of the Bolsonaro administration, but who resigned after there was uh, uh, evidence that that Bolsonaro, President Bolsonaro was trying to tamper with police uh, nominations and with police investigations against his administration. He resigned in protest, but since since uh, leaving the Bolsonaro administration, there's al already been rumors about him as a possible contender in opposition to Bolsonaro in the 2022 election. So we're in a in a very interesting scenario because both of both Lula and Sergio Moro are very important political figures and very important for what will happen in 2022. So we're all watching anxiously to see what's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. So you're saying that the, this judge who went after Lula was actually being thought of as a possible candidate, but will this finish that off? Will these allegations against him finish his possible candidacy? Uh, and, and then... Is it not? Can Bolsonaro run again? So it, it could get very confusing, even on the right. Then yes, um, it, it, we have to remember right now that all four of Bolsonaro's uh, children, who are uh, in public office and are senators and congressmen and have held, hold public office in Brazil, all of them are under investigation for corruption. And so one of the major uh, one of the major promises of Bolsonaro running and, and winning the election was that he was going to be, his administration would be a clean administration. And his administration was was very, was going to be very aggressive in fighting corruption. He, he was going to drain, he was going to drain the swamp. <laughs> yes. It just so happens that. Trump's line. Right? Yes. And so what happens and actually what, what is happening right now is instead, since, since assuming office, and since these investigations and allegations started, including of his own children, he has really been very controversial in, in blocking investigations and being very adamant about going after uh, protecting his family, as he claims. And so I think there is a, a very important part of Brazilian society that still continues to think that the anti-corruption agenda is really important and who is disillusioned with Bolsonaro and is looking for another political force that can continue to take that, that agenda and, and continue to, to lead that agenda of eliminating uh, corruption in Brazil. So I think that, that 
Sergio Moro in certain sense, since he did resign from Bolsonaro's administration in a, in a resignation as uh, making a very huge statement about the president intervening. And after he resigned, there was a lot of back and forth between him and the president regarding the allegations that uh, he was making about the interference in the police and in, in investigations. I think it, he became a very important potential leader for the 20,000 uh, for the two, 2022 elections. But at the same time, growing evidence has been presented and has been growing that there was a lot of procedures about Lula's prosecution who where, where there's evidence that there was, for example, conversations that were ongoing between the prosecution and the judge, which shouldn't have been taking place because that there's kind of strict laws about what information can be transferred and shared between who is judging a case and who's prosecuting in secret. And the coordination should have been, shouldn't have happened. And so th that was that evidence that emerged recently. That's the evidence that was used uh, in the judgment that came out against Sergio Moro. Now, this decision by the Supreme Court uh, one a few days ago, and then another one just yesterday or today, which are both relative, you know, favorable to Lula. Does this reflect that the elites, at least sections of the elites in Brazil, have had enough of Bolsonaro? Well, the, this this week has been really monumental in Brazil. Um, in addition to what happened with the Supreme Court, this week we had a for the first time in a year of the pandemic. There was a major announcement that was a manifesto that was released by economists. And what was interesting, there's over, I think there's now over, I, I'm not sure the last time I checked the signatories, but there was over 1,200 economists that signed this um, manifesto. This was a manifesto that for the first time brought in left and right-wing economists together to call for uh stronger social distancing policies and a stronger response to the pandemic. And that was very, uh, very that's really monumental because usually, uh, in, including former ministers in Brazil, of, of, of ministers of finance in Brazil who signed in former central bank presidents, it's monumental that those individuals were able to come agree to sign a letter with left, more progressive economists together to unify and to to kind of add their voice to the table. So even we can say the Brazilian equivalent of Wall Street is tired of the lack of leadership, the lack of response, and sees the uncertainty that is continuing about where we're headed as a major threat uh, to, their, to their interests. And so I think we're seeing a lot of movement that we hadn't seen before. And as a result, also that's important to, to emphasize, immediately, the, the president, as soon as the manifesto was released the next day, the president yesterday made a major uh, speech on nationalized te television with a very different discourse than what we've been hearing for the last couple of months and pr making promises and making claims about the type of leadership that his administration is providing in regard to COVID that was very uh, contrarian to what he said in, in even a week ago. So now he's claiming that there is a crisis and he's dealing with it. And he's always been dealing with it and he's always been at the forefront of this crisis. And thanks to his leadership, we are about to get uh, vaccines and we're the 
making actual actually like fact checks afterwards was really was required because some of the claims were we're the fifth we're the country that the fifth highest country in terms of leading vaccines uh in terms of how how fast and how many people were vaccinating so there was a lot of of, of discussion but it be, it's become very clear that bolsonaro is shifting his position and he has a new minister of health who also assumed this week and who is a actual medical doctor so we transferred from a military general to a civilian medical doctor as as the minister of health and both the minister of health the new this new minister of health and bolsonaro are both emphasizing now that our salvation is vaccines so uh the instead of thinking about kind of the exit strategy now is we're going to do vaccines but we're not going to do what's also important to 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 notice is what they didn't say in the speeches so what we didn't talk about a lot about is social distancing masks testing all of the other parts of of a response that we need to coordinate and lead and invest in uh in term in in a moment that's really great we have have over 3000 deaths per day in brazil yesterday we had for the first time in the history of the pandemic so we're in a very critical moment and uh it's very clear that vaccines has to be a complement to a very comprehensive strategy in a continent continentally sized country and so as slow as vaccines are coming we can't just uh, assume that vaccines are going to resolve all of brazil's problems it's not a magic bullet and people are are people resisting wearing masks and is he not and the government's not advocating wearing masks so we have a federal law that was passed by congress that he vetoed several parts of the legislation and the vetoes were overturned after uh, in july so since july there's a very strong policies in place regarding mask mandates across brazil but in but he tried but he tried bolsonaro tried to ve- he tried to veto this he vetoed and his veto was overridden but several of of uh, his vetoes uh his his vetoes in in some of the clauses of the mask mandate law his vetoes were sustained so we have it we do but we do have a mask mandate across brazil the problem is enforcement and the problem is also that political leaders don't use masks including president bolsonaro as rigorously and as an example and so um there's been a lots there's lo- there's lots of we have a lot of kind of what is the what is the flavor of the day some days we're going to wear masks some days we're not we never know uh with a, with a lot of the political leadership at the national level what is the example that's going to be chosen so some days bolsonaro takes off his mask and goes to a crowd and socializes and shakes hands with everyone in a couple of days after lula spoke what we saw is a very different picture of a bolsonaro wearing a mask and setting the kind of example that he hasn't set before so lula's because in lula in lula's in lula's speech he really condemned bolsonaro's covid policies yes he made a point thereof. he made a point to to speak about and and we have to remember that lula appointed very important uh and very prominent health uh ministers that made had it, kind of very important uh contributions as part of his his administration so he cited and he made references to talking about 
his experience in government and his his experience while while he was in government what he would be what he would do and how he sees the current moment and i think that was a very powerful and direct uh part of his speech that really made an impact into making uh the media making policymakers making leaders understand that we are going to debate the pandemic in the 2022 election because part of the strategy of the bolsonaro government is we're going to say that it's the governors and the mayors that just couldn't get their acts together and we're going to run in 2022 uh trying to run away from the pandemic and say it wasn't our fault it was other people in government's fault and i think what was critical about lula's speech this week was pointing to the attention is we are going to debate and we're going to debate about what you should have done now there is a story uh, that got some attention here uh, that the brazilian government had arranged for uh, several i don't know hundred thousands or even a million doses of the sputnik the russian vaccine and that the americans leaned on the brazilian government not to distribute it is that true is that story uh, legitimate so unfortunately we we've one of the things that's been happening in the in the last couple of months we don't have a lot of transparency about the actual negotiations and and who is making the negotiations and what are the prices that are being charged and the agreements that are being charged but there was a a movement by private entrepreneurs in Brazil who wanted to procure the to the vaccine and make an agreement to arrange for the Gamaleya Institute to work with a local uh manufacturer and pharmaceutical company in Brazil to make uh and distribute the Sputnik vaccine in Brazil locally and the 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 part of the fallout in the discussion is first that's very controversial because public procurement in a country that has a public health system and who the priority should be right now to think about public procurement and coordinating public procurement of a vaccine um that's shifted to trying to think about what 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 other agreements can be made and who can make purchases uh on in the private sector that's a first kind of a raising a, a alarm signal because that's not what the government should be doing in this moment is sanctioning a free for all it was it should be coordinating public procurement through its public health system to distribute and vaccinate its population because it's lucky that it has that infrastructure that many countries don't have but the second thing that was very controversial is is that the the vaccines that are being negotiated and what what ended up being negotiated is not actually the gamaleya which at least we have even more documented research regarding that vaccine but a vaccine from india from the bakharat uh, manufacturers that we don't yet even have clinical trial information yet on so and and lots of different promises around those vaccines when that was criticized then the government moved to sign agreements with pfizer and and with johnson and johnson so there's a lot of also important nuances to the story around vaccines because the agreement there's a lot of geopolitics involved there's a lot of private sector interests of of big pharmas in, involved and there's a lot of also uh concern by the slowness of the vaccine rollout 
and the fact that we don't have enough vaccines. But is, the, is it correct that the United States, the State Department, leaned on the Brazilian government not to use the Russian vaccine? Or is I haven't that, is seen, that a real story? I haven't seen official confirmation. I know that there's, there's like, of course, lot, there's lots of rumors in this moment uh, of a lot of a lot of things. The same thing with the Russians, right? <laughs> um, and the Chinese. Every every week we're reading a new conspiracy theory, but I haven't formally seen anything specifically that showing that evidence. Okay, so I mean, just again to say how important all this is to the world. Uh, if the COVID does not get controlled in Brazil, it's not going to get controlled in South America, and if it's not controlled in South America. Trying to control it in North America isn't going to mean that much. Uh, and of course, it's not just South America. It means, you know, Africa and, and, and really the whole world. But, but Brazil is critical in all of this. At any rate, let, let's get back to Lula. So Lula makes a speech to the Metal Workers Union, which sounds like the beginning of a campaign. He doesn't call it that, but it's, you know, he, he's already talking about what he would have done if he was president. And he goes through various policies and so on. How much... What has this done in terms of the politics? Now, last time we talked, um, in spite of all the craziness, uh, you were telling us that Bolsonaro's polling was still pretty good. He was still quite popular. Is that still the case? Yes, it's still the case. Um, so his key, one of the things that's important, though, to, to underscore, uh, and this is not only the case for, for Brazil, but for many countries in the developing world, is that before the pandemic, all of the polling was done in person and it was done in public, you know, transportation sector. Uh, you would go to a bus station or a subway station and interview people. And during the pandemic, polling has changed and we're polling people over the phone. Um, but it is true that those polls that we're doing since the pandemic started, he has had a steady following of the of the Brazilian population that is about a third of voters plus or minus, who stay loyal and who approve of his administration. It's important to underscore that that is lower as compared to previous Brazilian presidents at the same moment in their presidency. He's still performing at a lower level of, of approval than even uh, than Dilma, than President Lula, than Fernando Henrique Cardoso. But he still does have a third of of, of the electorate behind him in approving, even in, in after uh, this whole year of, of crises in which we've seen that we're really seeing right now, as you were saying, first, we have over 3,000 deaths last night, but also we have two variants of concern that have emerged in Brazil. So there's a variant of concern from Manaus and a variant of concern that emerged in Rio. And so there's a lot of concerns about that actually there's it's a very serious situation this is no longer um something that it, it's it's easy to deny that we're making up these numbers or as the one of what as as the minister of health that was newly appointed this week said in a certain address i'm gonna go see if really the hospitals are that full to see if really uh the excess capacity that we're talking about the health system collapsing if it's truly uh the case or if there's statistics and are being manipulated. People know people. Everyone knows someone who died. Many people know several people who 
have been in the hospital. Many people know many people who weren't able to get tested and had to go to several different places before they were able to get treatment. So it's very it's it's a very difficult situation because people have familiarity with the virus. People have familiarity with how lethal it is. People are seeing that we have new variants, but there's still a group of voters that back President Bolsonaro. Why? I think one of the things is that, like we were talking about before, uh, Bolsonaro has been very strategic or very, very intelligent about framing the pandemic as something that was the responsibility of governors and municipal uh, mayors to solve and to address. And that he, you know, he can do so much at the national level, but it it really matters. Local effort is what really matters. And we saw that this afternoon for the we had the first address by the now fourth minister of health during uh, the president Bolsonaro's administration. And during that address, the minister of communication interrupted the health minister to say, you know, we're distributing vaccines, but the problem is that the governors and the, and the mayors are not getting the vaccines quickly out enough to the population. And you really need to look at and investigate the governors and, and mayors. And so that's consistently what Bolsonaro likes to do in his, in his speeches. He likes to say, I'm trying, but I can only do so much at the national level unless the governors and mayors do their part. And when we see with voters, we see a really strong division. The same voters who favor and approve Bolsonaro are also the same voters who identify that the key uh, agents that are responsible for the pandemic response is the governors and mayors. And when you ask the opposition, so the 70% who oppose Bolsonaro, whose responsibility is it for the crisis we are in, those voters identify the national leadership. So we, we, we live in the same pandemic. We know the same people who are getting sick and getting dying, but we see that the, the responsibility as being due to different people. Now, what's happening amongst the poor? Because life did get better uh, uh, for the poor under Lula, uh, if I understand it correctly. And even if you know, much of the left thought he could have done more, uh, still life got better. Uh, is life continuing? Did it continue to get better under Bolsonaro or not? So life... Am I correct in the assumption? Too? Yes. Um, so one thing that's really important to understand 2020 is there was a major there was there was a major effort to launch a, an emergency cash transfer program. That program reached over 60 million house individuals in Brazil last year, um, and that program was much more generous than emergency cash transfers that existed in previous administrations. The problem is that that cash emergency cash transfer rollout program, when it was launched, we have to remember. The pandemic peaked or we started to see a rise in cases in March, but most of the emergency assistance that arrived for those 60 million individuals, it arrived in May and June. And when it arrived, in order for you to access the funds, you you needed to wait in line in banks. And once you got paid, because it was physically uh, physical transfers of funds, you needed to go to use actually the funds in person. And so at the same time that we were saying we need to for everyone to stay at home, we need for people to be careful, we were saying 
but it's okay for you guys to spend money. It's okay for you guys to wait in lines. It's okay for you guys to take a, uh, on the bus and be on the metro to go get to go get your aid. And so I think that that kind of underscores that first Bolsonaro was very. In, uh, it was an important program. It helped to solve uh, a massive crisis that was starting to take place in Brazil. We were hearing reports of hunger. We were hearing reports of a very difficult situation. And that intervention, that cash transfer program was really important in May and June. And it made a huge difference in the recovery of the Brazilian economy in the, in the mid months of last year. But what happened is that aid was very poorly targeted. And uh, we saw a lot and, and it was very poorly designed in terms of the message it was trying to send. And now uh, the aid has dried out and there's no aid in place. And so we're in a peak moment again, just like last March. But when we see, except last March, we were seeing the beginning of the pandemic hit Brazil. And today we're at the second peak in Brazil of deaths and cases without any emergency program in place. And if we do start an, an emergency program in place of cash transfers, it's only going to be, be, be put in place probably in May. So we're going to have the same situation again. The aid is going to arrive too late to make a difference to the most vulnerable informal workers who need to stay home and to the poor who are who, to the working poor. And at the same time, we have to remember 10 to 20 million jobs have been lost during the pandemic in Brazil. So the situation is very serious for the working poor. And we need to be thinking about that that's, that's increasingly going to be very difficult for Brazil to manage. And there's another piece to the economic crisis I was reading today. Uh, I don't know if people watching know Brazil is a major manufacturer of automobiles. Uh, in fact, more I believe Brazil manufactures more cars than Canada does. And Canada has a pretty big auto industry. And this uh, shortage of semiconductors is such that uh, I, see, I see there's layoffs now in Brazilian auto manufacturers because they just don't have the parts to make the cars. Uh, anyway, given all, given all of this, you'd think it's fertile ground for Lula to make his comeback. Uh, last time we talked, you, you said that the Brazilian left was really quite fractured and, and there wasn't you know, a, a kind of united opposition to Bolsonaro. So is this the difference maker? Is it, will, will a broad front uh, be constructed around Lula? Can he, can he bring all of those forces together, which I guess he had done in the past? Yes, I, I think that it's too early. And, and, and I, I really want to underscore, I still think that, that that's a major weakness that we have right now in terms of building a coalition. If, if we're able... Uh, and if we think about what's going to happen in the in the 2022 elections, um, multiple candidates repeating what happened in 2018 is what brought Bolsonaro to office. And so the more people are in uh, on the campaign and the more people and the more political parties are dividing the vote, that is really going to be a major uh, uh, a major impediment to defeating Bolsonaro, because I think it's well, we're very clear that he has a strong core group of loyal voters and the other, the, the, the 70% that oppose him, they need to unite around a common 
party, a common candidate, a common vision, or a coalition that is willing to work together and make and allow one one candidate to be president and govern together. And like we said, Lula has been able to do that in the past, but it's very difficult because in this moment he would need to align with a lot of parties who are still not uh, willing to to and want to be risk being identified with him. And part of it has to do with the corruption allegations. That is a part of his speech this when he did make this speech last week. He what he didn't come out and, and make any statements of saying, I'm sorry, I've made some mistakes. And I think for some political parties in Brazil and for some political leaders in Brazil, he needs to meet them halfway. And he needs to acknowledge uh, that there there are there is evidence that there was money laundering. There is evidence that there there was uh, serious problems in 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 terms of uh, it's not he's not the first he's it's not the end of the problem. But he needs to come forth and be more frank about that and have a franker discussion than than he's having if he wants other parties to to come to the to the table. Because even if the process that put him in jail and took him out of the uh, campaigning. Even if that process was railroading and flawed, a lot of people believe there's a lot of reality to the allegations of corruption. Yes, a lot of people, and I, I think also the prosecution did. Sh- there, there is evidence, especially if we think about what happened with Petro Bras. We think about a lot of the other, the a lot of the evidence that has been forth. There is evidence that. Uh, especially, it can be that he did that a lot of the corruption that took place is corruption that was money that was being laundered to pay off congressmen to pass policies. It, we can argue about what the what where the money was going and for what it was going for, and it wasn't going to build um, or to, for personal gain. But it still doesn't take away the fact that money was being diverted and money was being used for. Uh, illegal purposes and and that money shouldn't have been diverted that way. So I think we still have to there's actually video of a there's video of a payoff, right? Yes, there's videos, there's there's a lot of evidence. And I think we need to have a conversation, especially if we want uh, it's very difficult for us to keep the conversation very polarized. So we have a very polarized society in this moment. If we want to reduce the level of polarization, we need to have a frank conversation about what happened and come to make some kind of minimum agreements about what we agree minimally occurred. Uh, and we don't have that right now in Brazilian politics at the level that we need to form a strong coalition to oppose President Bolsonaro. Because I think Lula has said, yes, yeah, some of this happened, but that's the way it is. If you wanted to pass what he would call progressive legislation, they had to bribe some right-wing senators to get it done. And he sort of justifies it. Is that true? And, and he also claims that a lot, there, there's also an argument about, I can't be responsible for everything. That there is, there, there was decisions that were made. Uh, they were not authorized by myself. They're in, people in my government made decisions and uh, and those people need to be held accountable, not in those words. And he hasn't said that. But I think there is an implication of n- not everything that happened that w- went went wrong is due 
to Lula's per se, but it also is due to other people, even ministers who turned against Lula and testified against Lula in order to uh, get l lower sentences and get pardons. Um, and so I think there's a, it's a very messy and very difficult conversation because there's a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, throwing the blame around uh, different people and different people for different reasons have given evidence and not all of the evidence uh, points to that Lula was coordinating the schemes. This is correct, but it's still important to be addressed that he needs to be more assertive about what he, what kind of, what what kind of government he would construct in in his next administration, and how much this would not happen if it if he were able to win office again, or if someone who he supports as president were to win. Is there any other figure that could the progressive and left and democratic forces unite around? Is there anyone else? Difficult. It's difficult because there's been, there's a lot of, there's been, for example, a lot of uh, important governors who have been really important right now in, in the pandemic response and in contesting President Bolsonaro. Um, but I think it's difficult because many of these leaders, they come from fragmented or smaller political parties. And so the the burden for them to bring together a coalition, to have the resources to really launch a major campaign and to be uh, viable candidates is much harder. Um, but we do have some governors and some mayors that have been, you know, drawn a lot of attention and a lot of interest because they've actually been able, for example, in the case of a, of, of a couple of cases, to show a really different response to the pandemic is possible and voters will support that. Uh, vote, you know, yes, there is a, a concerns about the economy. Yes, there's lower uh, uh, use of masks than we would like. Yes, people go out and don't obey all the rules, but we can still construct agreements about a different pandemic response than, than what is being held, led by President Bolsonaro. Now, Bolsonaro is not only a, a COVID denier, he's also a climate change denier, climate science denier uh, on the whole. Uh, given the importance of Brazil and the Amazon uh, to the fate of the world and climate, is, is, is climate at all an issue in Brazilian politics? Truthfully, in this moment, uh, climate is not as high on the political agenda as it should be. And I think that, that that's it's a very it's an important concern, but we have to remember the context, right? Um, with the economy and the the humanitarian in this moment crisis that is in Brazil under undergoing Brazil is undergoing, the the environment unfortunately is not on the radar as it as high of a priority as it should be, and part of it is also very difficult because a lot of what would happen to protect the Amazon, including speaking about indigenous peoples, one of the things we've been doing a lot of work to try to figure out is how much protection is going to actually make get vaccines to indigenous peoples and making sure that they're protected and that they're also not as gravely affected by the pandemic. A lot of that requires people going uh, out and and 
going to these communities that are very vulnerable and who've had a huge toll during the pandemic. So having policing to protect deforestation, all those activities in this moment it's very, is very difficult because the humanitarian crisis is very strong and there's not a lot of attention to enforcing other, other parts of, of important agendas. And that includes education, that includes the environment, that includes a lot of other huge pillars of Brazilian society that are, that are not being paid attention to it and not deserving the attention, not getting the attention that they should be. And meanwhile, we'll, we'll see whether the Biden administration. Oh, sorry. No, go I was going to say it's just that. Meanwhile, the minister of the environment is making sure to actually do the opposite. So trying to pass laws to uh, be more flexible and allow more exploration in the Amazon. So we're in a very difficult situation and the environment is something that we really need to work harder to get uh, discussed in Brazil. Well, if the Biden administration is actually serious about its what they claim is a commitment to a real climate change policy, then it, you would think it would also uh, direct their foreign policy and the United States would actually you know, lean on the Brazilian government and help uh, develop some real climate strategy for the Amazon. Uh, but I'm not so sure that's what Wall, Street's wants, Wall Street wants in Brazil. They certainly haven't in the past. Uh, but I guess that's to be seen. Well, listen, th that's really great. Let's let's leave it there for today, and, and let's do it again soon. Uh, thanks so much, Lorena. Okay, thank you, Paul. And thank you for joining me on the analysis.news, and don't forget the donate button and the subscribe button on YouTube and all of that stuff. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.